take your Bibles this morning and go to Acts chapter 8. And I thought that Brother Justin was going to steal my message when he started quoting from Acts chapter 8 a while ago. No, uh, we're in a little bit different area this, this morning. Before we get into this, I always like to, to kind of give you the setting, remind you what is leading up to this. For some of you, perhaps you, you don't know about Acts and all this is brand new. For some of you, it will be a reminder what has happened leading up. In chapter 7, uh, we are shown the incredible commitment of a a church deacon of a layman within the church named Stephen and the impact that his life and his death had on the early church. And there are many very practical lessons that we could learn from, uh, from Stephen, just a, a simple, committed layman in the church. He was a very natural man that God used to do very supernatural things through him by the power of God. He was chosen by the church Uh, at Jerusalem, the first church ever to be one of seven men that they called out to be deacons to serve the widows and the congregation of the church there. Chapter 6 and verse 8 says that he was full of faith and power. Faith was the dominating force in Stephen's life and and it led him, it steered his life. And verse number 10 of chapter 6 says that he was so full of wisdom And so full of the Holy Spirit that those that rose up against him in opposition, they were not able to resist what he had to say. He was a very selfless man. He was a man who the Bible says was full of grace. In other words, he was not focused on self-protection. He was not focused on self-comfort. But instead, he was a very bold witness. He was very courageous in his witness for the Lord. His life was completely committed to sharing the gospel, no matter what the cost. And this was not one of the apostles. He was not one of the the pastors. He was simply a layman in the church that became the first Christian martyr. And in chapter 7, he is martyred for his faith in Christ. And as we will see in this chapter, uh, it, it is the blood of Stephen and it is the blood of other martyrs that becomes the seed of the church's growth. It is the persecution that leads to the gospel going forth. And while his persecutors are spewing out anger and hatred towards Stephen, he is giving out grace. He is giving out love. He is giving out hope. And as Stephen is dying in chapter 7 from being stoned to death, he says these words, lay not this sin to their charge. Reminded, of course, as the example of Jesus himself who proclaimed on on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen is exemplifying that in his life. And so that is in chapter 7. And that leads us to chapter 8 where we are this morning. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, let's read it together. Just eight verses this morning. I was a little bit convicted when Justin was telling me that they did a training with all the pastors, the national pastors there through the book of Acts, and they did it in three days. Um, because we went through Acts for two years, right, when I first came here on Sunday nights. But I know how they do it. It's like all day intense, uh, eight, 12 hours a day going through that, and so very important. But this is uh, such a crucial uh, part, part of God's Word in a text that 
talks to us about the Great Commission. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Again, Stephen has just been put to death, and it says that Saul was consenting unto his Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voices, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame and were healed. And there was great joy in that city. I'd like for you to mark those words there at the end of verse number 8. There was great joy in that city. And I want to preach this morning for just a little while on this thought that of the gospel on the move. The gospel on the move. Father, we do pray that you would... Speak to our hearts through your word this morning, that we would be surrendered to it. Thank you for what you've done in our hearts already through the music, through the testimony, through the presentation this morning of uh, Justin. We pray, Lord, that you would just bless in our time this morning. May we uh, just be focused upon your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In chapter 7... In verse number 56, there's an interesting note there, if you'll look back, that those that were stoning Stephen, they were being assisted by a man named Saul. Saul was not just a a designated, quote-unquote, water boy who just happened to be there, who was kind of assisting, watching. Uh, No, it was Saul that was really leading this charge. He was actively engaged in the murder of of Stephen, this this church deacon, and the persecution of anyone who claimed Christianity. And it had become Saul's life mission to stomp out Christianity because he thought it to be a threat to Judaism. And later we find out that as Saul of Tarsus is watching closely this entire process that is going on, the stoning of Stephen, that it has great impact upon his life. That the sights that he sees there are things that he can never get out of his heart and in his mind. And I want you to note this morning an interesting connection between Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is the key verse of Acts and Justin just shared it a while ago. It says, "Ye shall receive as Jesus is going back and ascending back into heaven And an angel says, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses, Jesus says, you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Then you move to Acts chapter 8 and look at verse number 1. And this is the first time since chapter 1 and verse 8 that Judea and Samaria are mentioned. It says in verse number one again of chapter eight, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
I want you to understand this this morning as Justin insinuated earlier that it has always been the plan of God to sovereignly scatter his people and thus the gospel to the ends of the earth. It, was, it did not stop at Jerusalem, but it was to go into Judea and into Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And by the way, today you and I are beneficiaries of the gospel going beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. A lot of times we forget that it didn't start in the United States. That we are, we are blessed. We have the gospel because the gospel went to the ends of the earth. I want you to notice three things with me from this text as we go through it this morning that I believe should help us, should impact us, should prepare us for what may soon come to our own lives. What is the process that God used to move the gospel out of the salt shaker of Jerusalem where it started into the regions beyond? First of all, we see in the text that it is great persecution. In fact, those words are used Verses 1 through 3, verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Then notice in verse number 3, it says that Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women, committing them to prison. Don't miss the picture here. It says Saul made havoc of the church. That word havoc means Literally, that he ravaged the church like a wild beast. He went on a house-to-house search for Christians, much like Nazi Germany did years ago. Saul would go into these houses and he would find people who claimed to be Christians and he would drag them out and he would have them beaten and put into prison and he would confiscate their property. There was no end to the hatred that Paul or Saul at the time had for the church. No exemption for women. Saul of Tarsus, listen, he was a terrorist. He was out to destroy Christians. And I want you to be reminded this month and be reminded again today that the church has always been under attack. It is under attack. It always will be under attack. And a lot of times living in a a free country like America, we are blinded to that and we don't see that. But the true gospel is not one that uplifts and highlights health and wealth and prosperity in this day and age. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, as he was giving his final words to his followers, he says in verse number 18, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Do we expect greater treatment than our Lord? As his servants, as his bond slaves, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All that will live godly, Paul said, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Let me ask you this morning, does it pay to serve Jesus? It does. It pays every day 
in ways that, that we can't put a, a money on, that we can't look at and see with our hands. It pays every day to serve Jesus. But let me remind you as well that it also costs to serve Jesus. It costs us something to be his servants. In fact, Paul saw it as a great honor to suffer for Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, But we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I what? Strong in Christ, in his power, in his strength. Which is why I remind you, if dependence on God is the goal of our life, which it should be, then our human weakness is an asset, not a liability. Because it drives us into the very power of God, where is our most effective place to be. Persecution has a way of reminding us what is really important in in life. It has a way of reminding us of eternity and turning our attention away from temporal things to eternal things. And we have those in our our colleges and and we have those in our seminaries who who are now denying the truth of God. Those in our colleges and universities who deny creation. And there is a great need today for you and I to stand up and be willing to to speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. To endure what little persecution we actually endure here in the United States. Mark chapter 13 kind of gives us some some things, some persecution that you and I can expect. and, And persecution that many are already receiving around the world. First of all, we need to be ready for religious persecution. In verse number 9 of Mark 13, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be brought before religious councils and synagogues. And the word synagogue means a gathering of people, a religious gathering. Did you know that if you and I stand on the truths of God's word, that you're going to get persecution from religious people? If you say this this is what the word of God says, that even persecution will come from religious arenas. Also, there will be governmental persecution. He says in verse number 9, he says you're going to be brought before kings and magistrates. You see, our Constitution gives us the right of religious freedom and liberty, but that Constitution is being attacked and it is being twisted and it is attempted to be rewritten by revisionists whose desire is to make the government of the United States take a stand against Bible-believing Christians, and it is happening before our very eyes. And you and I, this is not the time for us to back up and, and backpedal. It is the time for us to stand and say, we stand on the Word of God. There will be governmental persecution. We must prepare for it. There will be religious persecution. There will be domestic persecution, he tells them in verse number 12. Brothers shall betray the brother to death, and the father and son, the children, shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. 
In fact, some of you who are members of this church who have come out that you are putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have already received a little bit of this, a little bit of of snobbing you, turning away from you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are others in other nations who when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, their family completely cuts off contact with them. Their family will have, in many cases, have them killed for their faith in Christ. Jesus warns of this. And then social persecution, he tells them in verse number 13, you will be hated by all men. You will be hated by those in our society who have an agenda, who who are trying their best to to make this society in which we live a non-Christian environment. Mark it down. There has been, there is and there will be great persecution to the body of Christ until, church, until Christ comes back for his church. We talked about this Wednesday night in our men's Bible study, but I, I want to emphasize it again, just speaking about where we live in America. We cannot separate our work Monday through Friday from our worship on Sunday. We have got to learn to take our faith into our workplaces, into our lives, wherever that is, Monday through Friday or Saturday. We need as Christians a holy boldness and a holy courage to say, thus saith the Lord, there is one way of salvation that is through Jesus Christ. And let me share with you the way that you can know that you have eternal life. If we are committed if, we, if we're not committed enough to witness and speak up for Jesus when it is legal, then how do you think we're going to do it when it's not legal for us to do so? As children of God, we should see the possibility of persecution as an opportunity, an opportunity to trust in the Lord with greater dependence and not to lean on our own understanding, but rather acknowledge him in all of our ways and allow him to direct our steps, to, to allow it to be something, uh, a possibility that, that gives us an opportunity to testify of his saving grace. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He goes on to say in verse number 44, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And if we do that, church, if they see that in our lives, if they see us standing on the two pillars of truth and love, then it will attract them to our Lord. It will attract them to our our Savior. And if they don't become a Christian because of it, it will make us a stronger Christian. We must plan, we must prepare for persecution that is to come. And listen, we must be given to a commitment to support and help those, our brothers and sisters in Christ and other countries who are already going through great persecution. Hey, if God hasn't called me and you to go over there and to endure the persecution, the least we can do is to pray for them and to support them while they're over there being persecuted for their faith. Why? Because great persecution is part of God's plan. It always has been. 
It always will be because what you will see next is that great persecution leads to what? Great evangelism. Great evangelism. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, what did they do? Here they are being run out of their houses. Saul and and those that are trying to stomp out Christianity, they're going in house by house. They're running them out. They're taking over their properties. What do these Christians do? Run for the hills? Go hide in caves? That's not what they do. You know what they do? Led by two laymen, led by the example of Stephen, led by another deacon named Philip. You know what they did? They went out and the Bible says, look at it, they preached Jesus Christ. They preached the word, verse number four. They preached Christ unto them, verse number five. Right in the middle of the persecution, what did this persecution do? Did it stomp it out? No, it exploded Christianity. It sovereignly scattered all of these believers into other places. Here's what happens just like you and I. We enjoy fellowship. We enjoy support. We enjoy security. So we come in and we, we have all of this we have our brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ. And I was thinking about this as Justin was talking about them moving out into a new location. You know what would be easy for them? To stay where they're at in Zambia, where they have friends and where they have support and where they have all of those things. But that's not the plan of God. The plan of God is that we would be sovereignly scattered. And the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem were just like you and I. They had gathered in their holy huddle. Man, revival was happening in Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people were coming to faith in Christ. The church was exploding. Let's stay. That's where we want to be. And God says, that's not my plan. My plan is for it to begin in Jerusalem, but then to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And since you're not going to go on your own, here's a little persecution to get you out of Jerusalem. He leads them into great persecution so that great evangelism can happen. And Philip leads the way, and I love this about Philip. He is, he's a deacon. He is, he's a layman that is serious about his responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission. But if you were to go to Acts chapter 21, it no longer describes him as he comes to the end of his life as Philip the deacon, but it describes him as Philip the evangelist. I love that. His epitaph was that he became a faithful evangelist. And here in Acts chapter 8, he leaves Jerusalem and he goes into Samaria. Of course, we know from the Gospel of John that Jews avoided Samaria at all costs. Remember in John chapter 4, it was Jesus who told his disciples, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment there and he was setting an example to the apostles that, hey, there's going to come a time when you are going to go into Samaria as well, that you're going to leave your comforts. And in our text, the world mission program of the church at Jerusalem begins as they move out of Jerusalem and they move into the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's still very much active today under great persecution. A recent documentary reveals that the fastest growing church in the world, guess what? It's not in America, it's in Iran. An underground church with no buildings, an underground church with with not a lot of resources, 
But by the droves, Iranians are turning their back on their Muslim faith and they are turning to Jesus Christ. It's been documented that in the last 20 years that there have been more people, more Iranians come to faith in Christ than the 1,300 years since Islam swept through the Persia uh, Empire combined. The last 20 years. No buildings, no big offerings, just a people who are committed to Christ, who have been persecuted by Uh, persecuted for their faith. And it is a reminder, church, that the sermons that we preach through our pain are louder sermons than the ones that we preach through our prosperity. People listen. They see the difference in our life. And I believe that these scenes from Stephen's death, they are forever ingrained in the heart and mind of Saul. And although he is fighting against God here, we can read in Acts chapter 9 that Saul, the persecutor, becomes converted and becomes Paul, the persecuted. He becomes the greatest missionary of all times, perhaps. God has always, listen, church, God has always propelled the church forward through persecution. And we see that here in Acts. In January of 1956, there were five notable missionaries who were massacred in Ecuador by a tribe of people who had become known as the Aka Indians. And it appeared at time, in fact, if, if you go back and you see news broadcast about it, you will read that this is the, the greatest tragedy in missionary history. That these five young men These sharp young men with beautiful wives and children who had such a burden for these people. And as they landed their plane, that their, their lives were taken from them. It seemed like the worst tragedy. And yet God used the death of those five men to bring about one of the greatest revivals in that area of the world. In fact, it was their wives and their friends who even after their death went back to those same people and showed them love and compassion and shared with them the gospel. They were saved. A church was started in that area, and it became a vibrant church that sent out missionaries all across the region, not because they went there and prospered, but because they went there and died. And their blood, the blood of the martyrs, became the seed that God used to spread the gospel in that area. Elizabeth Elliot, who was the wife of Jim Elliot, wrote a book called, and I would encourage you, if you've never read it, Through Gates of Splendor, to get it and to read it. And it is her documentary of what God used in perhaps one of the darkest moments in missions to bring about revival. Persecution disconnects us from our comforts and it sends us out in dependency upon God. The same thing happened in communist China, by the way. There was a group of Christians and people that were saved and they were gathered together and someone said, hey, we have to do something about this. And one thing that we know is that they like together and they're building their strength by gathering together. So let's, let's scatter them. Let's, let's separate them. And in trying to stomp out the gospel and trying to, to, to put water 
on the gospel, they actually poured gas on the gospel because what they did was spread missionaries all across communist China. Sovereignly scattered by God to get the gospel as he planned. Great persecution leads to great evangelism. And then lastly, and we'll be done. Notice in verses 7 and 8. The great persecution or great opposition brings great evangelism. And then there is great joy. I love verse number 8. Say it with me. There was great joy in that city. Say it with me. There was great joy in that city. The first fruit of salvation is joy. And joy is not dependent upon circumstances. That's why you go to these foreign countries and you see people who have absolutely nothing. And it's why I love going to the Philippines because when I first went there and and went to Ghana, I saw another level of Christianity that I had never seen before. People who were in poverty, people who who were in many cases being persecuted for their faith. They had none of the things that you and I had. And yet they were the most joyful Christians I had ever seen in all of my life life. Because joy is not at all connected to our circumstances. It is connected to the confidence that we have in Almighty God. And where there is evangelism and where there is faith in Christ, you can bank on it. There is going to be joy. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison for their faith. And instead of whining and complaining and bellyaching, you know what they're doing? They're singing songs. They're joyful in the midst of their circumstance. And God brings an earthquake. What happens? They're able to escape. But they choose not to leave because there was a guard who was about to take his own life because he knew that if they escaped, his life would be taken. He he goes to take his own life. And the Bible says that they said, wait, we're not leaving. We're here. And that guard came to know Christ. And I love verse 34. It says, and when he, the prison guard, had brought them, Paul and Silas, into his house, he set them before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why, Isaiah? For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Jesus should bring joy to our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love and what? Joy. Then why is it, church, why is it that the richest Christians in all the world come in on Sunday and sing all praise to him who reigns above in majesty supreme oh victory in jesus my i'll be glad when the, we've been standing now for three songs why does brian make us stand for three songs Did you see the benches they sit in in Zambia during Sunday school? 
That, that's a luxury, by the way. They usually sit on logs. Do you see them? Uh, we might laugh and snicker a little bit, actually, if we saw a video, because you know what they would be doing? I should have brought my tambourine out here, Brother Justin. They would not be singing, oh, victory in Jesus. No, in fact, when they take their offering, you know what they do? They dance to the front and give their offering. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior. We can't even get our folks to clap in a song. Hey, we are to be the most joyful people on the planet. Salvation ought to bring great joy. And when people come in here who aren't used to coming to church here, they ought to see a people who are filled with joy, who are filled with life, who are filled with love, and full of worship towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, Miss Cindy. Don't get over it. The problem with most of us is that we've gotten over it. We've gotten used to it. It's become common. In fact, a non-joyful Christian doesn't even make sense. It's an oxymoron. It's like saying we had a crash landing. Do you have a landing or do you have a crash? It's like saying that it's an exact estimate. Is it an estimate or is it exact? It's like saying, give me the larger half, Brother Jim. How can there be a larger half? How, let me ask you, how can there be a non-joyful Christian? When you realize what we have in Jesus Christ. When we realize that we were on our way to hell, bound in the shackles of sin, but Jesus set us free and has given us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We ought to walk around with joy in our, on our lips and joy in our life. Come on, Christians. Don't be afraid to raise your hands and worship the Lord and clap your hands. You say, well, we're, we're Baptists. We don't clap. I'm going to take you to Psalms one day and show you all the scriptures that say, clap your hands, O ye people. This is joyful praise. This is joyful praise. It ought to be a part of our life. And and I need a big dose of it too. I can be the biggest grouch in the world. And you don't get to ask him about it. See, last thing she says to me coming up is, remember, Jesus loves children. Some of you are like, what in the world? You had to be here last week. You missed last week. You missed the, the jokes. Hey, we ought to be bringing joy into our workplaces. We need to be prepared for great persecution. We ought to be willing to help people like the bedwells and like the bars get to where God has called them so that the gospel can do exactly as God planned it to do, to scatter throughout the whole earth so that they can bring great joy to those little cities in Zambia. I can't wait till the next report to hear and to see the stories of what God does. And guess what? You and I get to be a part of it. 
We get to invest in it. We get to be in on the blessings of it. Great persecution, great evangelism, great joy.